there. You're listening to the Game Developers Playlist, a new podcast from gamesindustry.biz. I'm your host, Rebecca Valentine, and this is the third episode of a new series we're trying out. Uh, if you've read the site regularly, you might have seen a regular column called Why I Love, in which we enlist folks in the games industry to write a bit about the games that have inspired them or shaped their journey as developers, creators, and game makers. Uh, it's a great column. We're still doing it, which if you're interested in that, drop us an email at news at gamesindustry.biz and let us know. Uh, but we did, also, we did also want to talk in more of a conversational style with people across the industry who may not necessarily, you know, want to do a, you know, written column for whatever reason. So here we are. This is the Game Developers Playlist. We've already had some great conversations with folks like Aaron Lindy and Dav Davion Gooden about Earthbound and RPG Maker, respectively. Um, and this week, I'm delighted to welcome the creator of an absolutely darling game about birds trying their best, Skatebird. Megan Fox, mastermind of Glassbottom Games and Skatebird. How's it going? Hi! It's going all right. <laughs> it's Friday, so really good. It is Friday. We're recording this on a Friday. I have no idea what day of the week this is going to go up on. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, before we get to the games that inspire you, um, I think people should know a little bit more about you and your work. Uh, can you start by telling us how you got your start in games in the first place? Yeah, sure. So hi, I'm Megan. I have been in games industry for like a oh, decade, I think, at this point, maybe a little over a decade as professional <laughs> hobbyist a lot longer. I got into games development when I was like, well, I've been in ever since I was a little kid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, a long, cool backstory that's really not worth getting into. Suffice it to say that I did game development, like old school game development back before Unity and if this was in Windows 95 and so on and so forth, when I was around uh, like 14. And then when in my early 20s, I started doing 3D. And then in my late 20s, I got a job at a company called, um, you won't know it, a startup called Eidolon, making a thing you never heard of that had really cool graphics. And then from that, I got a job at, um, I don't know, I'm drawing a blank, <laughs> NetDevil. NetDevil was their company. They went through three different names while I was there, so it got a little weird. I got a job on NetDevil on a game called Lego Universe that hopefully you have heard of. At least you've heard of Lego. So, yeah. And then from there, I got laid off in the studio, blew up in smoke, and the game got shuttered. And then I found a Glass Bottom Games, and we've done uh, Jones on Fire and Hot Tin Roof, The Cat That Wore the Fedora, and Spartan Fist, and now Skatebird. Skatebird, your current project, which uh, you reveal... You, well, it, you, tell, tell me about Skatebird. That was foggy memory. This was like last year. You were kickstarted last year. We kickstarted mid 20, it's 2020 now. We kickstarted mid 2019. Yeah, we no announced in like <laughs> November of 2018 or something like that. And we started development on it right after Spartan Fist, which was like May 25th, 2018 or something. So we've been on it for about two years, year and a half. No, like, no, I guess like a year and a half right now. No, probably two years. No, it is. it has been two years. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the game. What What is it about? Because just in case people haven't seen all the fantastic gifts that uh, y'all have posted. <laughs> uh, skatebird is a game about trying your best, and uh, you are a skateboarding bird, and your big friend has gotten a terrible job and never plays you anymore, and you are going to fix that through the power of being a tiny skateboarding bird. <laughs> it's really, really cute. Uh, it's uh, You're planning on 2021, the last time I saw your Steam page? Yeah, early 2021, probably. That's awesome. So now that we know a little bit about you and the work that you've done, um, I want to get into the focus of this chat, which is um, a game that has inspired your work. And your pick for this episode was Ultima, Ultima 7, which I have to confess uh, was a game that 
was a bit before my time and certainly before my... <laughs> I, I was a little bit late getting into video games. I didn't start until the GameCube and I was already like a little bit older than most people are when they get into games. Um, so can you just tell me broadly about the Ultima series? Like what, what is it? What's it about? Yeah, sure. So broadly speaking, the Ultima series is a series of games made uh, principally by Richard Garriott. Richard Garriott was the only developer at first of the first, I believe, two or three games. And over time, it got less indie and more large team. And then eventually EA bought Origin, the company that made Ultima. And then it got very corporate. And the Ultima team actually got kind of angry about it and started making mean jokes about EA that were well-deserved and et cetera, so on and so forth. So it started indie, became not very indie. They are a series of RPGs. Early on, they were like really old school. Uh, how would I contextualize this for modern audiences? Um, so not roguelike. But if you think back to when roguelike RPGs were a thing where like your character was a, like a letter, think of the very, very, very next generation where it wasn't ASCII anymore, but it was barely better than ASCII. That's around where Ultima Graphics started. Where I got into them was Ultima 7. Ultima 7 looked like what we'd think of as a 2D indie game now, like 2D pixel art. Uh, relatively ro low resolution, kind of a half down half top down game uh if you've ever if you happen to know the twitter user anychan uh aniko is i believe her twitter handle she is making a game that looks a lot like actually she's made a couple of games that look a lot like ultima because she's also <laughs> was into ultima when she was younger and now thinks it's cool and so on and so forth so yeah if you're if you're trying to figure out what ultima looked like go look at mid boss or one of her other games and you'll be close to what ultima looked like or you can google ultima but that's the gist and it was an RPG. The reason Ultima 7 was cool was because that's a, Ultima 6 and Ultima 7 was around when they started essentially being what we would now call an open world RPG. With uh, everything was systems driven, there was a day-night cycle, NPCs got up in the morning, they had breakfast, they went to work, they came home, they went to sleep. If you screwed around with, like, if you put poison food on their table, they would actually sit down, accidentally eat the poison food and die. Or you could drug them that way. And there was a what we it was it wasn't actually a quest, but in modern games you think of it as a subquest or side quest, where you could break into the bank and steal the gold. And there were a thousand ways of doing that because of this weird systems-driven everything, where you could like drug the dude, you could drag the dude out of town and murder him, you could do all kinds of weird shit that I'll get into later as we're as we're talking. <laughs> That's the overview. That already sounds really cool and extremely my jam. Um, this was a game, just you know, sort of doing a little bit of research before we started recording this. This was an early '90s game. How did you first discover Ultima Seven? Uh, Ultima Seven, early '90s. So pretty much everything was shareware and demos that got passed around that way. So Ultima Seven would have doubtless been something I found as a free demo-y type thing at some point. There was a free version. I believe the way it worked was it locked you into the. Um, there's an initial starting town, and you solve a little mystery there, and there's a murder mystery, and yada, yada, yada. And I believe there was a demo that was just that town, and then we tried to leave the town and said, ho, 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 you must register. <laughs> I would assume that I got into it that way, and then I begged some parent to purchase the game for me, because at that point, I didn't have a job or money. So you were pretty young, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're not, I don't think we're that far apart in age. <laughs> um, what, do you remember much about what your very first experience with the game was like, or your earliest experience with it? 
Oh, uh, well, yeah. At the time, it was impressive because, like I said, it was it was an open-world RPG before we knew what those were. And I'd never seen anything like it. This was back in the era of, like, Doom might have been out or was barely out. Quake definitely wasn't a thing yet. So you kind of put your brain back to that era. The idea of an open-world, top-down RPG that you go under around to do, in 90s terms, everything and actually have it respond to you in a cool way and not just say no or not just lock up and freeze and not do anything. That was amazing. And my early experiences were well, probably trying to kill everyone and realizing that worked and then realizing that everyone would murder you right back and realizing it was a bad idea. Then it was probably – so there's a kid you can recruit into your party early on and – this was like way back before we weren't allowed to kill kids in video games. So you'd go out adventuring, and the kid got murdered horribly. And the sprites for their time were really graphic. So, like, there'd just be this murdered child that you couldn't ever fix or do anything about. And that was probably an initial experience of, oh, shit, I've got to be careful with my party members. They're not just gods and or throwaway. And then there would have been something about... I strongly remember um, equipping the kid with like a giant broadsword and realizing he became a combat monster if you did that. And then it was absolutely hilarious sinking a tiny child against guards and just watching him tear through everybody. Was there a, a story that went with this that you were following or was it just sort of this kind of open exploration kind of thing? So theoretically there was. The entire series of games of Ultima is that you are the Avatar. And what the Avatar meant is that in the context of Ultima, you are you. You are sitting at your computer, and as the game represents it, you look around and you see a portal open, and you walk through the portal, and now you are the Avatar. And you are in a new, a different world where you are now, are now a magical person, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, it's this, you are, a, you are you going on a magical journey. It was very late 80s, early 90s. Um, so there's that. And then the plot was... Uh, for the first three games, uh, there was technically a plot, but wow, it was very throwaway. <laughs> and then around Ult Ultima 4, there was this concept of virtues. And the virtues were really boiled down morality, but for the time it was cool. Like, don't steal and give money to poor people. And there were like stuff like that. But still, as a kid, it was important to me. And I built my morality around it. Cause, oh, it was cool. It was a system and yada, yada. So I was like... 10 or something. And from there, it built into, by Ultima 7, you were the avatar and you had slain a bunch of dudes and were a good guy, yada yada. And now there was the, um, oh, what was his name? Red guy. Red imp guy? Okay. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Red evil imp guy taunts you and, oh, I've corrupted the world. Ha ha ha. And you get pulled in, and what you're supposed to do is restore the virtues, which have been corrupted variously, and that becomes the... That's kind of the plot of the next three Ultima games, and they just do it three times <laughs> in different ways. So I guess they kind of did the plot in Ultima 7 when they were still technically an indie studio, and then they got bought out, and they just shrugged into the same plot twice more. In <laughs> sets. So, yeah, it works. Yeah. So that was allegedly the plot. You start with a murder mystery... The murder mystery leads you to the central castle, and then the central castle is where you realize some shit is fucked up, and you've got to go around to different areas and do something involving black pyramids. 
like there was allegedly a plot and it was okay, but like it really wasn't the point. Right. Ultima 7 Part 2 actually fixed the plot thing and made it a lot more plot focused. And there was a really cool plot there, which I can get into, but like suffice it to say, they did fix it. But Ultima 7, the first one, eh, just mostly just a world. Wait, sorry, forgive my ignorance. There's a Part 1 and a Part 2. So, yes. There was a, so there was the first game, which I believe was Blackgate, and then there was what we would now term a DLC, but at the time it was an expansion or something. And that was like, that was either call, all called the Blackgate or it was called like Isle of Virtue or something. Anyways, it doesn't really matter. And then there was a part two, which was essentially a sequel to the game. And it upped the resolution, the character sprites looked a lot cooler, there was a lot more plot, like a lot, lot more plot. The writing got a lot better. The world got a lot more detailed. It was just essentially building on what worked in Ultima 7. And it was really cool. Like, that was a great version of the game. And it was set in a new world and so on and so forth. Essentially, it was a sequel, even though it was called Part 2, because it was a continuation of the story. Well, a continuation of what little story there was. Right. So, like you said, you played this when you were for the first time when you were fairly young. How how has this game grown with you? Have you have you revisited over, over the years? Like how how have you kind of explored it since? Uh, well, if anyone's listening wishes to play this now, Google Exult E X U L T. It's an emulator that will play Ultima Seven, Ultima Seven Part Two, and I believe it'll now play Ultima Eight, which is Pagan, which was actually a pretty cool game. It wasn't at the time; it was super buggy. But the patches have since fixed it and made it less buggy, and you can kind of hack and cheat your way around the shit that really sucked. It's worth it's worth experimenting with. It was the game, if you were ever a kid and you were in a store and you saw a giant box with like a burning pentagram on it, and that was the entire box art, that was Ultimate 8. And it freaked the fuck out of my grandma when she saw the box. So, you know, fun memory. <laughs> uh, but as far as evolving with me, I mean, beyond that, it, it's now emulated and you can actually play it. I've revisited it a couple of times and realized that the systems were a lot smaller and a lot simpler than Kid Me thought. And the game's gotten a lot smaller, but my memories of it are still important. So I don't, like, constantly replay it. But the experiences I had in it were remain important to me. And I've wanted for a long time to make a systems-driven game that pulls out a lot of the elements that made the game fun. Like, it, uh... Actually, I can give you an, example, uh, an excellent example. Have you ever played uh, Divinity Original Sin 2? I actually beat that game just, like... what What's today... Wednesday, I beat that game. Awesome. Have <laughs> you seen the uh, Larian Studios documentary? No. Okay, so first of all, if anyone's listening, there is a Larian Studios documentary. I don't remember if it's by Noclip or who it is, but if you search for Larian Studios documentary, you'll find it on uh, YouTube. Very worth watching. They're a cool studio. I've been following them for a long time. Larian Studios, most of their games have been similarly inspired by We Think Ultima's Cool, We're Going to Make More Ultima Games. This started in... Uh, Divinity, and then it was Beyond Divinity. That Those games were very clearly essentially Ultima plus um, Diablo. It was like a really clear fusing. So um, Divinity was notable in that it maintained a lot of the weird stuff that you could do in Ultima, like weird item combinations, double-click this, click this, weird shit happens. But it boiled down a little bit. Uh, when you get up to Divinity Original Sin 2, you're down to... The crafting system exists entirely in a menu. It makes it not feel very much like crafting, and the reason they've done this is presumably because the interface is a lot simpler and it's way easier to do on gamepad and so on and so forth. 
but it takes a lot of the fun out of it. So even though in Alt, uh, Divinity Original Sin 2, you can bake bread by combining water and flour, and that gets you dough, and then you can combine dough with apple to make apple pie dough or uncooked apple pie, whatever they call it. And then you use that with an oven, and you get an apple pie. That's cool. That's the, kind of the soul of Ultima. That's that side system that you can do all of this stuff with. But by building it into a menu like that, they've kind of sucked the joy out of it and sidelined the whole thing. Yeah, I think I touched that system exactly once in all of Divinity, and it was when the game made me touch it for a plot. Yeah, and it's a bummer because that whenever you represent that as a um, flat UI where you double-click this and you double-click that and it feels like you're actually interacting and doing things with other things... It's more involving. It's more interesting. And the way the economics of Ultima 7 were balanced, you could actually... So at the very beginning, you start with essentially no money. And you have to find some way to... So there's a town where you can buy hams, and I distinctly remember flying around, robbing all the banks, putting all of the money in a barrel on the back of a flying carpet that you could find <laughs> if you knew where to look. And then I would fill the barrel with ham. I believe the reason you filled the barrel with ham, which was expensive, was because it was the most effective food item. And then because the barrel was filled with ham, all your NPCs would grab the ham when they needed it, and you could go for a pretty long time before food was a problem. <laughs> but, like, that, uh, that requirement of having food and food having being costly meant that, like, when you found flour, you could, you could actually make bread, and that mattered. Like, that was a cool thing. And if you found a way to cook other things, I, I think you could cook other like meat and maybe make your own ham or something. I don't remember how it worked. That had value because you had to do this to survive, well, to let your NPCs survive and your NPCs are important. And uh, Divinity doesn't have any of that. Like Divinity is, um, I don't want to say it's like Diablo. It's, it's, it's very much an RPG, but they kind of stripped all of the that kind of stuff and focused it more on just story, go to the place, kill the dudes, come back, story little bit of exploration. Maybe you're going to try to make a lot of money, but it's mostly to get skill books, which make you better at combat. It's very combat story, combat story linked, which is fine. It's a great game for what it is. But by making that focus and sidelining crafting, another good example is like, uh, did you know that in Divinity you can actually make armor and weapons? Nope. You can. No idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you'd ever want to, because all you can make are starting shit weapons. Like there's 16 ways to make... A, a knife on a stick. And it's literally called a knife on a stick. And that's nice and all, but I never once wanted to make a knife on a stick because by a half hour in, I've got a magic sort of fireball up the ass. So <laughs> why do I want a knife on a stick? And just that that division gets wider and wider as the series goes on. So as an indie, if I ever made a game uh, kind of channeling the, cult, the, the feel of Ultima, I would probably wind it up bit further back and I would focus more on the systemic world stuff and making the systemic world stuff actually matter and somehow I would do that without making it into a survival crafting game because it's really easy to stumble the other way and then that has its own problems yeah and there there are like I mean I've played games with the systems that you're describing before that are not you know RPG combat focused games but they also don't sound much like Ultima yeah, and it's this narrow band that you have to walk. And the reason I've never done it is because, uh, first of all, it'd be expensive to do it right, and second of all, it's just a weird thing to try to do. 
And maybe someday if I have a success and get bored, I'll attempt it. But uh, we'll see. I, whenever I was younger, this was why I got into games and I wanted to make a game like this. And that was going to be the thing for me. And as I've gotten more and more experience, it's like, oh, wow, that's going to be a hard one. It'd be cool someday, but oof, maybe not today. I will keep my fingers crossed for that happening because it sounds really rad. <laughs> I think it'd be really cool. It's just... I'd need probably six months of just goofing around to figure out how to even make it work. Yeah. That said, you know, are are any of the things either that you've discussed already or that you still have in mind, you know, from Ultima that you loved about Ultima or that you thought about Ultima, have any of those made their way into any of the games that you have made so far, whether it's like ideas or structures or anything else? Uh, The closest would have been Hot Tin Roof. Um, Hot Tin Roof had a lot of light and sometimes heavy puzzle elements. And it had inventory systems and clues. And it, it, uh, one of the things I enjoyed about Ultima was that murder scene at the beginning. That mystery set, that mystery solving was, it was cool. I mean, it wasn't involved, but it left an impression on Kidney. And that probably informed me doing similar, I think I did two murder scenes in Hot Tinder, maybe three. And again, it was probably because of that. I, I liked that sense of find the thing, talk to all the people, gather the clues. Okay, accuse the suspect and see how it goes. And if you get the accusation wrong, you can continue, but the game kind of laughs at you. You said why it would be so like fairly difficult for you, especially as an indie, to make something you know like Ultima or inspired by Ultima now. But you know, th- there's studios out there with that have you know just plenty of money that could conceivably do something like that. Why do you think no one's done anything quite like that since? Well, they have. I mean, that's what Larian Studios has been trying to do for uh, two decades. And uh, Larian Studios is also your evidence of why no one else has done it. <laughs> Larian's been like on the hairy edge of collapse for most of its life until it got the hit of um, Divinity Original Sin 1 and that let it finally get away from publishers. Like until that precise moment, until the Kickstarter hit, it was really, really close all the time because of their reliance on publishers. And that's ultimately what's hanging, holding everyone back too. Now, Larian wanted to do it with higher polish because Larian is a larger studio. And Larian is a larger studio, needs larger games that make larger amounts of money. There's this weird scale thing that happens where the size of your studio kind of dictates the scope of game you make because small scope games don't tend to make large team amounts of money. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Okay. So you could probably make an ultimate game that was smaller scoped, for a smaller amount of money that would make less money but still enough for a small team. It's just that it's likely to be content heavy and that kind of thing is expensive. So usually, well, in the last five years or probably like last 10 years, people have been stuck on procedural generation. (laughs) So you look at this problem and you say, okay, well, I want to make a world with crafting and I want to make a world with living systems that interact with each other. Oh, that content's expensive. I know, I'll make it procedurally generated. And the second you do that, you end up with this weird funnel that gets you into, you know, Google survival crafter or look on Steam in that genre. And uh, there sure are a lot of them (laughs) and they sure are all procedurally generated. (laughs) It's just, 
that is where most of those games have gone lately. And they've gone like they're so severely that I kind of think an entire generation has forgotten that those games can be not procedurally generated. I'm hoping that someone eventually looks at the success of um, Subnautica. Yeah. And there was probably one more that I'm forgetting, but Subnautica was the big one. Hand-built content that uses survival crafting elements. If you do things more in that direction, you get a... Well, you get a different experience that feels more like Subnautica did, and it did a lot better because of that. And I'm hoping that'll maybe eventually inspire more games that are more in the ultimate direction, but I think they're still going to be really almost pure sandboxes with no story of note, heavy focus on combat as opposed to heavy focus on narrative or exploration. Uh, usually they gate with some kind of threat that controls how far you can explore until you do a certain amount of crafting, and again, that's not really an Ultima thing. Ultima was more the crafting and the uh, the world systems were just there as opposed to being critical parts of the design, which is, I, I guess, loops back to mo the biggest reason why no one's done it, and that's just that Ultima is a messy game. Ultima wasn't a game where everything was streamlined and all of the systems meshed perfectly. It was back in the exploration phase of that entire genre of open world games in general, where there was no set genre constraints. There were no expectations. So they just kind of made a whole bunch of systems and smooshed them together, and it was a fun game for what it was. But it's possible if you made that game today, people would immediately compare it to Minecraft, Subnautica, yeah. Divinity Original Sin 2, and whatever else, and they would pull it apart in 16 different directions because you've made a game that spans all of those genres, and you're sitting right on the border. And it, it must be tough, too. I mean, I'm, I'm not a developer, but I can you know, imagine that j just the, the bare bones trying to make a trying to make a crafting system, not just a, a kind of a side thing that happens to be in your game, but make it like sort of a central piece of how your game works. Like I can only imagine how challenging that must be, because to even just have one item, you need to have two items that combine to make it. And those two items maybe also have to have uses and, you know, interesting things about them. And then you can't just have that one thing. You have to have lots of things. And then all those things need to fall into different categories. And then you need to have some sort of progression. So like, so you're not just making the same, you know, crummy knife on a stick over and over like that that just sounds daunting and i i don't even make games I, I can't even imagine trying to do that well yeah and uh to be clear ultima didn't really have progression i mean they were just uh you could be, do things uh, the the joke with ultima games and ultima games that uh, games that were compared to ultima was one second was can you make bread the joke for rpgs was is this an rpg in which you can make bread and if you could make bread that was a sign of a good rpg <laughs> that whole conversation in check has disappeared forever and maybe one person listening will remember that and hey you're awesome <laughs> but um it didn't go much further than that like you could bake bread you could cook things you could it was pretty much like they're like in a modern game there'd be a jewelry system and you could like make magical jewelry and there'd be a clothing system and you could make fancy clothing and you couldn't really do any of that you could take it as far as making textiles you could take it as far as making uh there might have been a couple of reagents you could eventually make. Or, it, it really low-level stuff like that. And that's as far as they took it because it was just an incidental crafting system. But it wasn't entirely incidental because the outputs of that crafting system were, were actually useful. So if you could find a way early on to make bread, then, hey, you had a food source. And it wasn't a very good food source, but at least it would get you going. If you could find an early way to 
exploit systems to get a lot of gold to make ham then or to buy ham then stuff like that like it was it was a lot of incidental systems that because of the game design were relevant at certain parts of the game uh kind of like you say that there was only one time in Divinity Original Sin 2 that actually made you use the crafting system, right? Yeah, it was like on some fire island. I had to. I got like a mold for a handle, and then there was a bar of silver sitting around, and I had to turn it into a handle to open something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the, oh, what, the, the blood island or something. Yeah. Oh, I guess I had to do it one time with like a, a like a knife and some blood or something. I don't know. Like like what? Oh yeah, the, there was the yeah you had the, the ritual you had to do. Oh, that was the other cool thing. Ultima Seven. Actually, they specialized in Ultimate 8. Ultimate had ritual magic, and uh, ritual magic actually had, instead of just being open a book and cast a spell, it was a very in-world way of casting spells. You actually had to mark the corners and drop reagents at corners and find the right things to go in the corners and find the ritual, cast the ritual, say the words. It was this whole involved thing to cast a large spell, which was a really in-world way of doing magic as opposed to uh, you know, the typical open magic book, press button, and kapow. I think they even made you do the rituals to learn the spells that you could then cast quickly, which is, again, continuing the ultimate ethos of crafting mattering. In this case, it wasn't crafting. It was, you know, ritual magic, but kind of sort of similar neighbor systems, which is was a neat way of extending it. But yeah, so uh, Divinity Original Sin 2... If, if they had at least worked the crafting in more where you were more encouraged to do it, and if they'd had a crafting interface that was more interesting than white bread, maybe it would have been more fun and more akin to the game they were trying to stay close to. I think what's actually happening, though, is there's probably someone at the core of Larian who still remembers Can You Make Bread, and they're insisting that every game have crafting from now on because it has to have this because this is how a good RPG is made. And then everyone else goes, Ugh, okay, granddad. And they sideline it into this crafting system that no one ever uses because it's a piece of shit. And yeah, probably. Do we know yet if you can make bread in Baldur's Gate 3? Well, it's a Larian game, so you probably can. I mean, <laughs> I, I assume they're going to use the same engine. Yeah. Um, I, did, I did have one other question for you. You also mentioned when we were discussing, you know, what game you wanted to talk about. You, you did mention Ultima Online. And I'm sort of curious oh, yeah. as to where that fits into all this. So what I've been talking about with having uh, Ultima 7 and Ultima 7 Part 2 have relatively limited crafting systems. One of the main differences in Ultima, uh, Ultima Online, aside from being <laughs> online, obviously, is they took the crafting systems and extended them to their logical conclusions. That's where they did actually add, now you can mine ore, now you can refine ore, now you can turn refined ore into at least steel sheets or something like that. Now you can turn steel sheets into various kinds of armor, now you can turn steel into steel plate and you can turn uh i think iron was it steel into steel plate and iron into chain mail but like different qualities of armor require different qualities of materials that you found in different places in the world and then you could i believe you could eventually enchant them i don't remember how that worked probably with some rare reagent or whatever you found somewhere but yeah point is that ultima online took the crafting to its logical conclusion and by doing that you could actually play the entire game as just a uh just an armor maker, or just uh, just a merchant, basically. Tons of different merchant variants. And one of the best ways early on to make money was actually to make skull caps, because all the components were really easy to find, and they sold for a large amount of money. So there was this weird early game strategy of making a crap ton of skull caps. And I think you had to start with the tailor skill to make the strategy work, because if you didn't, you didn't have the right items or something like that. I don't know. It was an interesting side 
story side uh, system. But yeah, that's what Ultima Online kind of did to the game. They did that, and also it made it more online, and now there's, you know, thousands of other players. But it was a relatively... So at this point, whenever you think of an online game, you think of everyone in the same world, or at least the game is pretending that everyone is the same world. And even if you're not technically, when you're friended, now you're in the same space. Uh, Ultima Online was very intentionally smaller shards, uh, smaller subservers. You could not move players between them, or at least you couldn't at first. And that meant that while it was online, it was a it was more of a more of a village square kind of online where you eventually kind of knew all the major players in an area, as opposed to like being in a city online where it's just a bunch of random ass people and who the hell cares. That difference also gave it its own flavor as far as online games go. Whereas now there's really no sense of community because well, there's like a million people and there's a air quotes community, but it's pretty weak. That's that's most of the gist of what Ultima Online was, really. Megan, is there anything that we haven't really covered yet that um, you want to make sure you say about how Ultima 7 and Ultima Online have sort of shaped you as a developer? Oh, yeah, I guess there's one thing. Ultima 7 Part 2 was where... So I am a male to female transsexual, if anyone listening, uh, by the way. It's, uh, you know... Pride Week, Pride Month, etc. Anyways, um, Ultima 7 Part 2 had a uh, romance story in it, which was with Frigidazi, the ice mage, Frigid, Frigidaza, Frigidaza, something like that. Anyways, because the programmers were lazy, they didn't bother gender limiting it. So this was my first exposure to a lesbian relationship, playing as a female character. And since I was playing as a female character, because I was projecting my... Uh, gender existence of desire or whatever in the video game, this was a weird first exposure to the concept of trans women who were lesbian. That's all. That's so cool. I had no idea. Yeah. And it was all because, I mean, I'm sure someone went, oh, this is cool because it is player choice. But also it was probably because, oh, this is a lot easier if we just don't code this for both genders. This was, what What year was this again? This, this was seven, you said? Uh, Ultima 7 Part 2. So mid-90s? Early to mid-90s? Okay, so definitely at a point in time where there was not a lot of... Oh, even, yeah. yeah no, no. Just even same-sex relationships at all in games, really. Yeah. Or re- just, relationships it, in games, really. Mm-hmm. Like, there, were, there would have been the other games that had it, but, like, this was the first time I'd ever seen anything like it. So, yeah, that really stuck with me. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Megan, was there anything else that I didn't ask you that you wanted me to about Ultima? Nah, that pretty much covers it. Ultima kicks ass. Please try it and exult. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, This has been the Game Developers Playlist. We will be coming out with new episodes on the regular, which you'll be able to listen to on all good podcasting platforms, alongside our weekly news show with the rest of the GamesIndustry.biz team and a second new podcast from my colleague James Batchelor, where he talks to industry figures about five of the milestone games they've created. Uh, Once you find us on a good podcasting platform, consider subscribing so it'll let you know whenever another episode appears. And you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at GamesIndustry.biz. Megan, tell people, where can they find you and your work? So, you can find me on Twitter at GlassBottomMeg, or if you just search for Skatebird, you'll find you'll, you'll find it at this point. Skatebird is coming out on Steam for desktop, you know, PC, Mac, Linux. So it's coming out to Switch and Xbox. We will be an Xbox Game Pass game, if you have to be a Game Pass subscriber. And that will be early 2021. If you could please wishlist us on Steam, it would really help us out. Thank you very much. Megan, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone.